0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Joe Dorowski, and joining me this week is producer Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. And we are talking about Freder and Maria from Metropolis, the classic silent sci-fi film from uh, from Germany from the year nineteen twenty-seven. Uh, Andrew, do you remember when you first came to Metropolis? Uh, this is the first time I've watched it.
1: I have, I I have seen some images of it. I remember. Did you have a poster of it in your in your room? I
0: did not. That does feel like or like uh, you in high school, oh yeah, like uh you know the 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 putting on the film geek airs mm-hmm. that that was definitely part of my personality, so uh, I, is, but, but no, I don't think I did,
1: I definitely remember like a film poster of it as probably like my most distinct early image of it, and you know, like there's like the the big robot and mm-hmm the jagged letters for it um and so i i have that image and i don't know like if i saw that in a book or it could it could have been it could have been like at the library our our library growing up had an extensive film collection and that's the kind of thing that they would have put up on like the end of one of the shelves or something
0: i'm wondering if you saw it in a like star wars documentary because they definitely do acknowledge definitely possible uh, its influence on star wars Mm-hmm. Um, so funnily enough, the movie poster for this has been in the news lately as, uh, recently at auction, the most expensive movie poster purchase ever. Where makes sense. It's a pretty dynamic poster. International poster for Metropolis sold for $690,000. Uh, honestly, I was expecting that to have a- another decimal point to it. Like, like, uh, over like six, over, over a million, over a million. Yeah, uh, I mean, six hundred ninety is plenty. Uh, the rumor is, and this is not con- confirmed by any source, but the rumor is that it was Leonardo DiCaprio who bought it. Makes sense. Uh, he he does seem like the person who might have that level of disposable income and a love of film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that Venn diagram. It, it would be like him or Quentin Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> do you think Do you think he got it
1: for himself or as a gift for uh, Scorsese or something? Uh I I have
0: no idea of what relationships are being <laughs> maintained there so I couldn't say but that would be a very nice gesture uh to that but yeah he, you know you're you're not out of bounds to speculate uh I, I mean uh, honestly it should probably be in an archive somewhere yeah that probably shouldn't be in a private collection well I was jo- like when I when I joked about Quentin Tarantino he just bought one of the historical uh theaters in Los Angeles and that's the kind of thing that I absolutely could see him mm. like having like, true classic movie. Not, like, reprints, but, like, no. I, I've got the real movie posters here on display in this yeah. old-timey uh, art. You know, that's its own kind of archive. Yeah. Um, anyway, I, I remember Metropolis uh, really becoming, hearing of it when I started to become a film nerd uh, in high school, which, mm-hmm. again, was like I I made that part of my personality in that kind of off-putting way that teenagers will
1: but it was also Uh, like it was authentic like you were you were
0: actually a film nerd you you were
1: conveying it you you were performing it as but it but it was from a place of like you really did love love, you did love films and you were interested in filmmaking Mm -hmm. and you were making film on our cassette video recorder yeah
0: yeah and i plan to study film i did study film i plan to study making film i ended up studying uh like critique of film that's become my job outside of you know th- this podcast which is not really a job with the amount of money we make on it uh you know but <laughs> but outside of this i do still uh you know study and write about film and teach about film i'm teaching a film class this semester so it is uh you know still still absolutely part of who i am um but i became aware of it in that early like trying to learn film history because so many directors reference it. So many film books, you know, mention it as one of the most important films ever made. I didn't actually see it until I was studying film in college. At that point, conservative estimate, I saw it in three different film classes that I've sat through (laughs) the entire thing. Uh, Each one with a different soundtrack. We'll circle back to that in a little bit, uh, talking about the soundtrack. And I have now assigned it to uh, a few film classes. Uh, So it's something I've um I've engaged with both as a student and as a teacher um uh, being able to talk about metropolis and it really is hugely important uh but it's also one of those that is um like it becomes like like it's an early level film geek shibboleth of like mm-hmm. do you know metropolis do you know fritz Lang uh you know where like when you when you are just starting to study film uh not just like the, the big American films but like study the history of film you're going to come across this and if you drop a reference to first Metropolis it's like a signal to everyone like I am a film geek I do I do speak film geek uh, does anyone else here <laughs> you know <laughs> did anyone else here catch that uh, and, and, and you know it's not a deep cut because uh, as as soon as you do start that down that path you're going to come across lots of references to it and probably uh, get a, an urge to watch it um, it is a full-length silent film. Um, so it mm-hmm. does have a long enough runtime and require enough attention that you can't do it as sec- secondary viewing. The way that we often, in mod- modern media consumption, do two screens at once. You know, playing whatever random app on your phone or answering emails on your laptop while something else is on. You can't yeah, do that with, with the, silent film.
1: Because it doesn't signal you when to look up for for text.
0: Mm-hmm, exactly.
1: And so you'll miss um, out on on things and... I mean, there's a doppelganger scenario that comes into play, and so you do have to be able to track yeah. who who is which.
0: There's so much yeah. that happens into it. So, a little bit more information. Metropolis was a 1927 German expressionistic sci-fi epic. Also, throw an art deco with there. Uh, we'll we'll get to some of that. Uh, but it was directed by Fritz Lang. It was written by Fritz Lang and his wife at the time, Thea von Harbo. The script was based on Thea von Harbo's 1925 novel, which she wrote as a novel- anticipating this will be adapted into a film. Um, And this is by her husband. (laughs) uh, Well, she was an established screenwriter. Like like this wasn't writing the coattails of her husband at all. Mm. Uh, Like she was an established talent. She let. Okay. I'm just going to get this out there now. They were both asked to help the Nazi party with their propaganda. Fritz Lang said yes. And then got on a train that night and left the country uh, to, (laughs) to France. She stayed. <laughs> Just gonna put that there. <laughs> Interesting dynamic. <laughs> yes. Uh, the film stars Gustav Froelich as Frieder and, uh, or Freder. Oh, we're debating how to pronounce that, right? Before. I'm gonna say Freder consistently. Freder. Okay. And Bridget Helm as Maria. Uh, so let's get into some of that trivia. I already hinted at some of it. So, the this film, when you watch it like stylistically, it's heavily rooted in a film movement called German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. This was uh you know we're a couple decades into film as artistic expression and as business at this point german expressionism is where uh there is the shift away from either trying to capture uh some some real life cinema verte like like capturing a real life setting either by putting the camera somewhere or building a set that looks like real life also avoiding or, or moving away from The style of essentially filming a proscenium arch as a play is performed. Both of those happened very early on in film. They're very natural things to do with the camera. Mm -hmm. With German Expressionism, you're going to build wild off-kilter sets, uh, put the camera at odd angles, heavy usage of manipulation of light and shadow to create mood. It's all about mood and feeling over reality. With German mm-hmm. expressionism, modern filmmakers who are heavily influenced by German expressionism, the the go to would be Tim Burton when he's at his most Tim Burton. Uh, you know, yeah, that like, man has watched like, uh, uh, The Cabin of Dr. Caligari, another classic German expressionist film.
1: Yeah. So so you're thinking like Tim Burton, uh, Edward Scissorhands,
0: mm-hmm. very, yes. very deep in that Tim Burton, Big Fish, not as much well depending on which part of it we're talking about, in in moments yes but depending on which story is being told which tall tale is being told but then the son's point of view never never german expressionism that is like he's using the language of the father's storytelling and the son's storytelling he visually delineates those through cinema verite when he's filming the son's Mm -hmm. point of view and hyper expressionism some of it like unto german expressionism when his father's telling stories and 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 like uh well let's not turn this into like a a big fish dissection of like film techniques. Yeah. Which, <laughs> never, which we've never done that on the podcast. We should do big fish. Um, um, it's. Also, we
1: haven't done like a, a a deep film technique and big fish is a good one because it is
0: that like, stark like, juxtaposition yeah, like, it highlights the juxtaposition. Yeah. I signed and, that with to my students in my film yeah. class and. I would just say that one gets maybe the greatest divide in terms of students hating it and loving it. Where it's like, why haven't I watched this? This is one of the greatest films I've ever seen. And like, why did you make me watch this? Which mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is high variance on student reactions to Big Fish.
1: And, uh, and and sometimes it's fun to like talk about the craft. Mm-hmm. So we we
0: could do that sometime. Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll put a pin in that. And we'll, we'll look for that in 2024 sometime. Uh, the, the film is also... Um, particularly the world of Metropolis, the the above ground city is Art Deco, the style that flourished in the 19-teens and 20s. You also okay. see gothic elements, futuristic elements, uh, well, like retro, what we call now retrofuturism, uh, cubist elements. Like, there's there's a lot going on. And a lot of different spaces in the film of Metropolis have their own distinctive style uh, that, is, that is given to it to evoke the different feelings and moods that we're supposed to have as we're mm-hmm. seeing sequences within those spaces. Um Metropolis is one of the first feature-length sci-fi films. Let me go double-check its runtime. Uh, it was like three hours, depending on the cut that you get. Yeah, we'll we'll get it as the two hours. One one hour fifty-three or one hour fifty-four is the uh what what we have now. Though it does say. Uh, or at least that's the one that you most frequently find today. The original cut was 153 minutes, though much of that was considered lost. Some of it has been recovered in the last 10 years. Uh, it got heavily edited after that. Um, What would that be? Uh, two and a half hour uh, mm-hmm. original cut. Um, yeah, two and a half. And so most like for when I was watching it uh, in film classes 20 years ago, that was always the two hour cut. I think the cut that we have now is closer to like two hours, 20 minutes. There's still maybe Mm -hmm. 10 minutes that's missing uh, from from that original cut. So uh, it is a long film (laughs) to get through. (laughs) Uh, And particularly if you're not in the right mindset for silent film and some of the conventions of silent film, the very broad pantomime style acting, uh, the heavy makeup that flattens a lot of the features of the face actually. the some of the framing uh, of the shots like it it can just be off putting enough that it's a turn off and then when you're in sitting through what is a stylistic turn off for 2 hours this is one that is another high variance reaction from my students uh <laughs> as to what what their opinions of metropolis are um but it is considered one of the most influential films ever made and we'll talk a little bit about films that we can see seeds of metropolis taking bloom in films that were made 40 50 60 now 100 years later uh um just about so um the film uh the film's acting is a very broad um uh, pantomime style coming from the stage tradition but it was normalized in the silent cinema so it's not out of place for when it was made and gustav frolic who plays freighter he had not acted in film before and he came from a vaudeville tradition um and Let's see the the, we we mentioned the film's original cut was 153 minutes after the premiere. About a quarter was cut and an original uncut version of the film has been like a holy grail for film preservationists uh, for decades. Um, Over over those years, I like I believe it doesn't exist anymore. Various sequences have been found and restored and plugged in and um, production stills sometimes get inserted into like we know there was a sequence that was here and we have some production stills of what the sets looked like and what the mm-hmm. actors looked like when they were performing it um but now there's about a 90 to 95% complete version of the film that is there though some of the sequences like the film quality is just poor like we don't have the original negatives right. this is yeah know, it's not it's not an year equivalent old, 90 year old <laughs> Um, you know degrading uh, film that uh, now we've got it like we're gonna be able to preserve it at that level but we can't like go back mm-hmm. um, because there have been many 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 cuts and edits so it's not just that like a quarter of it, the film was cut like as it was sent to over different countries different things were cut because uh, some of it's a con- was considered very racy uh, at some of it is, is certainly in different orders yeah uh, there's a lot of versions out there um it even like there are cuts that exist that have a title card that say the film is set in the year 2000, some that say the year set in 2026, when Paramount released it in the US, they changed that to the year 3000. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but if you get a most uh, some of the most recent cuts, they are attempting to restore the original as much as possible and they don't think there was actually any reference to what year this was in the original that all of the, that was actually added after the quarter was removed so like this is all over the place uh, what happens um the the shoot for this film was long and arduous and difficult it was 17 months Whoa. <laughs> uh, of shooting uh and uh there's a german special effects uh artist named eugene schuftan who invented techniques this is one of those where it's like i want this we can't do that figure out how and he does uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of people um and he made made use of basically every special effect trick that existed and then invented more uh there is one trick that was called ended up being called the Schufton process uh that would use mirrors to make it look like actors are inside of a miniature set uh so the, the mirrors are within the miniature uh and and getting the the right sequence of bouncing <laughs> things uh to get the actors inside of a miniature. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay. Yeah. Well, and when I also saw one reference to also having a very large mirror that the actors would act and try to get the right angle so that something could be a miniature could be reflected behind them. I saw it described as both ways. So I mm-hmm. don't know for sure. I've never Use the on effect
1: that and- is an interesting dynamic that yeah, it would I guess theoretically allow you to suggest that an actor is in a space that you didn't actually build the full size mm-hmm. set you could yeah. you could build a miniature and then have the actor act within it as long as they don't have to move around too much yeah.
0: dimensionally mm-hmm. oh that's interesting I'm, I'm wondering if that was like i i didn't see. I mean, I didn't go super hard in this. Like, this is more just... yeah. I I was surface level on my trivia. But I I, I immediately wondered if the Moloch sequence involved that. Maybe. Yeah. Um, There's a flooding scene in this. For that, Fritz Lang hired 500 children from the poorest districts of Berlin... Uh, and provided them with hot food uh, and toys and uh, time for play. But they also had to spend 14 days in cold pools (laughs) while they were filming the the, the actual flood sequence that they did not enjoy uh, as much. Feels a little weird in context of the film. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Let's see. A film score to be played with a full orchestra was written to accompany the film, but... Boy, can you find a lot of other scores <laughs> <Just> to go <laughs> with the film today. <laughs> a recording of that original film score was not made until the year 2001. And people were watching this in film schools and in... Uh, all, in all the way before that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, since the film came out, people were watching versions of it. Um, from releases in the 1970s to the present, uh, some of the other scores that exist. There's a BBC classical score, like in the vein of classical music. There is an Australian experimental score. Uh, uh, like techno pop score there is a straight up pop score with Pat Benatar singing on it <laughs> why didn't I
1: watch that one I love Pat Benatar
0: oh I watched that one in, in film class definitely at least once oh, uh, there is a straight up like techno score that was done and many others Wikipedia lists over 20 scores that have been written to accompany this film Um, let's see I think I already told you a little bit about yeah that uh, Um, Fritz Lang was famous as a German director before Mm -hmm. Metropolis. He had made, uh, um, or, or another film that he's going to make is M, which is his first sound film. That one is also considered a masterpiece and taught in film schools all the time. So, you know, he's got multiple films that are like considered, iconic uh with the rise of the nazi party goebbels uh reportedly had a meeting with him to head up the nazi film division he agreed and then got on a train to paris that very night uh and then from france he moved to the u.s and he continued a long career of filmmaking in hollywood this is one reason why hollywood dominates the film scene the world in the world (laughs) is because uh the the thriving film industries in europe had their infrastructure destroyed and their talent drained to hollywood because they couldn't make films Mm -hmm. in europe uh and so they all ended up working in hollywood and stayed in hollywood because you could still make films in hollywood after the war um and uh he did return to germany in the late 1950s and make uh like one or two final films in germany uh let's see the the script for metropolis was based on that novel by thea von harbo she was first wife but the couple's Open marriage and frequent affairs, it seemed like on both their accounts, led to the divorce in 1933. (laughs) Um, One can imagine that it would. Yeah. Her life under the Nazis is controversial. Uh, After – well, this is where it gets interesting, though. So after her divorce from Fritz Lang, she's going to marry an Indian man. He's forced to leave Germany with the rise of Hitler. But she stays and works in the German Nazi film uh, propaganda industry and makes Nazi propaganda films. And is going to be held in a British prison camp after the war. But she's always going to insist that she stayed within the system of the Nazi regime so she could advocate for Indian immigrants like her husband and try and ensure that they, they had a safe exit from, from Germany. Um, I don't know. It's messy. Uh, anyone working with the Nazi party, that's going to be a hard one <laughs> to to come back from, whatever <laughs> your, your, your feelings were. Uh, Metropolis was panned critically when it was released uh some praise of the production design uh but uh, overall negative reviews but it's been reappraised and is now considered a masterpiece one of the greatest films ever made in 1989 there was a musical adaptation produced uh for stage and <clears throat> there was a tv miniseries adaptation that was about to go into production this year when <laughs> the writers and actors strikes occurred and uh while the strike was going on, it seems like some higher-ups got a look at the budget and said, no, no. So <laughs> it may not ever go back into production. We'll we'll have to see. They may have to re- rethink things if they want to get that actually rolling in front of cameras. So there's some trivia about Metropolis. And before we move on to the plot summary, listeners, we want to thank you for downloading this episode, and we especially want to thank any of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least a dollar per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are monthly shorter episodes in which we talk about the media that we've been consuming that we are not yet covering as full episodes of this podcast and all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss on to the spoiler summary. All right. In Metropolis, a city on the move, a city of the future. (laughs) I do have to stress the way that he presents Metropolis as a futuristic utopia city is amazing. And it is still very influential for how we envision cities of the future. Um, However, that is on the surface. Workers work in factories deep underground. The wealthy live above ground in massive skyscrapers. Uh, Joe Friedersen's, uh is the ruler of the city, and his son, Freder participates in Olympic-style sports and hanging out at a pleasure garden. You know, the life of the casual rich here. Um, while he's hanging out at the pleasure garden, a woman named Maria brings some children of workers up to the pleasure garden so that they can see Sun, breathe fresh air, but they get shooed away as riffraff. Freighter, though, laid his eyes upon Maria and was entranced, and he's going to follow her down to these lower levels that he's never visited. He sees workers at the factory and how monotonous and harsh their lives are, and this shocks Freighter. Then we get to the famous Moloch sequence. And this is a sequence in which he watches workers who are doing this machine like movement. It's heavily choreographed and uh a, 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 but, but one of them uh just collapses from the strain and it causes the machine to explode and it is a full on explosion with uh you know special effects bodies flying on wires and it it's impressive everything that they do and Freider gets knocked down from this and then he has a vision of uh the god from the old testament Moloch like dem- like
1: like a hallucination not, yeah. not he's not being like there's no sense this is divinely no Like a prophetic vision. This is this is like he is imagining that
0: this is a scenario. Yeah, he hit his head and now he he sees things that aren't there. Uh, That's what I mean when I say. Uh, But he sees a god uh, like like a, you know, a giant statue with a, a mouth and humans being. Uh, marched, uh, slaves being marched up into the mouth of the god to be sacrificed as a human sacrifice to this god uh, and, you know, they, and then uh, the vision fades and he sees all the dead workers from the explosion uh, that are around him. So he's, you know, envisioning uh, this capitalism has sacrificed these workers' lives to a god of efficiency, essentially.
1: It's a, it's a metaphor. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Uh, and definitely one that is in place in modernism in the 1930s as uh, people are coming out of the Great Depression and looking around the world at like the shake the shaking of the world financial uh, systems and kind of saying like well what are we doing <laughs> is, is this working and also with the rise of industrialization there's the questioning of mm-hmm. uh, the dehumanization of factory work uh, Charlie Chaplin's gonna play around with this with I was Modern gonna, Times. I, I was
1: gonna say like are you gonna mention modern times
0: yeah yeah like this is something we see a cog in the machine mm-hmm uh, uh, as, uh, you know, just an aspect of modernism uh, and, and the artistic expressions at, at this era. So um, Fre- uh, Freider is going to take some papers from one of the dead workers. Uh, or no, wait, sorry. Shaken, Freider goes to tell his father about what he has discovered grot the foreman love that name brings freightersen maps that were discovered on one of the dead workers so now the father has these these maps uh Freiderson doesn't actually care about the explosion uh <laughs> he's not really worried about this uh Freider decides he's gonna go help the workers and he goes back underground and switches places with a worker now Frederson has these papers from a dead worker and he's gonna take so, them so i feel like we need to be clear
1: Freider is the son uh, uh, the person that you are consistently referring to as Freighterson.
0: Uh, that's now. what he gets
1: in the, uh, it's what it gets in the, in the cards here. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: uh, uh, and so yes, Freighter is, is our main character. Youthful. He's, he's the prince. And then. Freighterson. Just and,
0: just think your classic business tycoon, bad guy. Archetype. Yeah, that's him. hmm. I, probably coming out of some of this film where we'll talk about the long influence of this, but like just envision evil businessman. You got it. <laughs> I, I, I tall, thin, evil businessman, not mm-hmm. portly cigar businessman. Yes, not Mr. Potter. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but he, he's going to take these uh, papers to an inventor named Rotwang. Now, Rotwang is an interesting man. <laughs> Boy, is he? <laughs> He'd been in love with a woman named Hell, but Hell chose to marry Frederson. <laughs> then she died when she was giving birth to Freder. Rotwang has built a robot likeness of Hell. This is healthy. This is good emotional coping. Uh, Mm. (laughs) Frederson and Rotwing somehow still have a relationship (laughs) after all of that. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they're going to look at these maps, realize their maps, follow the maps to the underground tunnels. There, they're going to be listening in to what the workers are getting up to. And they overhear Maria telling a group of workers that they need to reunite. Uh, the the ruling and working classes. This is not unite the working class against the ruling class. Right. It's not intended as revolution. We need to get on the same page, everyone, all together.
1: The, Frater, the, what, the head and the heart?
0: Or the head yeah. and the hands? Yes. They need the heart to... Well, what, oh, what is the metaphor? I, I okay, we watched this a couple weeks ago. There, uh, yeah. So there's, we had some um, tech problems. It, there's I, a there's a phrase that gets used all the time in this. The, the mediator
1: uh, between the head and the hands must be the heart. It, that, some, yes, something yes. like that. Yes. And this gets said several times in the film. Um so, and so, and so she's kind of like prophesying like we need to find the heart that can allow us to
0: the upper you, class is the, he- the head. Mm-hmm. We, the workers, are the hands. We need a mediator between these. Mm-hmm. A connection. Because right now we're disconnected. And, and uh, when we find that connection, it will improve our lives. Now, interestingly, Freider has disguised himself as a worker he's in the crowd. Uh, but he's also going to just declare that he's now in love with Maria. Like, he is 100% smitten with this woman. Mm-hmm. Uh Frederson tells Rotwang to go make that robot <laughs> look like Maria instead of hell. Um, which like it, it right now, the robot doesn't have skin. And the stuff. robot, so, like it, it is it is robot looking. Yeah, and he's got a system in place where he's going to make it look like a human. He planned to make it look like the dead love of his life, but instead they're going to make it look like this to them revolutionary named Maria. uh Frederson wants to use the robot Maria to discredit her standing with the workers. rotwing wants to destroy Metropolis and Frederson, <laughs> Frederson. So they have some opposing goals here, but they both seem the robot Maria as a way to achieve their goals. Mm -hmm. So Rotwing kidnaps Maria, matches the robot to her appearance. Robot Maria is sent to Freighterson. Freder sees robot Maria and his father hugging, and basically his mind snaps. He can't process this. (laughs) (laughs) Robot Maria is out for days. Yeah. is gonna go a little crazy. (laughs) And
1: just like... And, And real Maria is trapped in Rot
0: Wang's house. Yes. Robot Maria is ha- just having the the wildest most night of debauchery. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like that you can that you can you can imagine here. And and she is like triggering the upper class to get into fights with mm-hmm. each other and hedonism is reigning. Robot mm-hmm. Maria is just a, a, a inspiring people to lose all logic and reason and scruples and imbe- embrace uh, just uh, emotion and uh, and yeah, well, pursuing well, their base desires. Yeah, base
1: base desires.
0: Yeah, uh, and and that's not what uh, Fredersen wanted, but that's what Rotwang is trying to destroy the city. So Freighter is going to recover from his, his collapse, inab- his inability to process his father and his his this woman that he loves that he hasn't had a conversation with yet. I think do they have a one on one? No,
1: they, I, they they didn't did have, have a one on one by this. They
0: point. had a one on one in the. In the in, base. In the, right. Yeah, okay. uh,
1: underground before Ratwang kidnapped her.
0: Right. Yes. Uh, but he's going to recover and go wander underground. He's going to see Robot Maria telling the workers to go destroy the machines. Freder can't believe that this is Maria. Uh, but the workers are going to march and destroy the machines. Now, they hadn't thought this through. <laughs> this is going to cause a flood in the lower levels. Where Which is where they live and where the children are. Where their children are, where the families are. So real Maria is going to escape from Rotwang, find Freyder, and they're going to go try and rescue the workers' children who, Titanic style, <laughs> are, <laughs> are, are, are being flooded and trapped, uh, uh, you know, simultaneously. So Grot, that foreman, he's going to go chew out the workers and tell them that they flooded their own homes. Believing their children have died, the workers are going to grab Robot Maria and burn her at the stake. Trader is going to see this and believe he's been separated from Maria at this point. And he's believe that that's the real Maria. But then the robot form is revealed as the fire burns. Now Rotwing um has his own less than ideal mental health episode. He's he's kind of lost it at this
1: yeah. point. Like whatever he was uh, his, he, his his relationship with reality was tenuous. Yes, but he was self-preserving. Yeah. Uh and now he is not.
0: He's going to believe that real Maria is held the love of his life, who died giving birth to Freder, and is going to chase her to the roof of a cathedral. Freighter is going to fight Rotwing to save Maria. Rotwing is going to fall to his death. Freighter is going to bring his father, the brains of Metropolis, to meet Grot, the hands of Metropolis. Freighter must be the mediator, the heart between them. And he links hands with them, finally fulfilling his role as the heart. The end. Yeah. There's a lot going on in this. Yes, and the, <laughs> and there's a lot that
1: like was not specifically brought up. Like we're going to discuss some sequences that you didn't touch on specifically. Mm-hmm. Like it's it there's a lot here and if you're going to talk about Metropolis, you should probably watch Metropolis and not just listen to a summary of Metropolis. Cuz so awesome. much of this is is it's the awesome. design. Yeah. The design is so great. I yeah. love the visuals in Metropolis. Yes, um, the, the visual aspects of Metropolis like
0: is so much more important, I would say, than the story element of Metropolis. I mean that that the heart being the mediator between the hands and the head that gets said on a title card. Mm-hmm. What, four or five times in the film? Uh and, a lot. And, and it was like a it was like a pre
1: script on mm-hmm. the version that I watched. So it like it had it up front. It was said many times. And so it was like, Okay, uh, like I it's not subtext. Yes. <laughs> like this is the text that you Absolutely are dealing with. That is the works story. as a metaphor.
0: It's a good metaphor, but it is basically the entire story is just there mm-hmm. in that metaphor. <laughs> you know, that, 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 that's yeah, it. And, like, and it's two and a half, you know, two, two hours plus, uh, most likely a version that you're going to watch now.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the real value of Metropolis is not that it tells a story about how a rich man's son, you know, gets a gets a becomes a mediator between, you know, working class and upper class. And like. That is not the value that Metropolis brings to the world the value that Metropolis brings to the world is in visual storytelling and design and like new concepts for how things are going to look and how Mm -hmm. they will still look at a hundred years later.
0: All right. So let's talk a little bit about influences of, uh, Metropolis. Um, and we can just play a game where like each of us just, just names one. So right off the bat, the city of Metropolis and Superman is generally identified as being named after mm-hmm. this film as a city of tomorrow, a city of the future, this utopian vision. Which, again, this film's not like saying that Metropolis is all utopia, but that those visions of uh, the technology like it's got uh, biplanes flying around and uh, elevated trains driving between these Art Deco skyscrapers. Uh, it just looks uh, like you're, again, the, that retro futurism. Uh, it's just so on display, and it's all coming from this, and that is a look that is very much borrowed for Superman's um, hometown, the, the name Metropolis. But then even if you, like, watch the 1990s animated Superman mm-hmm. show, the look of those buildings, it's like, it's, oh, it's they, all... they watch Metropolis by Fritz Lang to design those buildings that Superman's flag around.
1: Hyper tall art deco layers mm-hmm. that look just like the Metropolis
0: in this. Yeah. Uh, Andrew, what's something that you know or, or think may have been influenced by this film? Uh, in
1: 1938, mm-hmm. Snow White from Walt Disney has particularly a a significant sequence of German expressionism uh, in a forest where trees are transforming into monsters. And that's kind of like the the Moloch vision. And um, mm-hmm. there's the angles and the the jagged lines and all of that sort of stuff.
0: Yeah. Oh, I I wasn't going to pull that one. So let's go to. Well, Uh,
1: it's like self-described as as German expressionism in that sequence
0: in particular. The this one is like explicitly identified. C-3PO from Star Wars is modeled off of the robot in uh, Mm -hmm. in Metropolis. (laughs) So uh, like when you see it, it's it's not like a one to one, but you can absolutely see that uh, this was the inspiration for how C-3PO looks. Mm hmm. Um,
1: I'll stick with Star Wars, and I will say the uh, Star Wars series Andor, mm-hmm. when they are in—I mean—a a work prison, they have these massive lines of shift workers changing shifts, and there's a sequence right at the beginning of Metropolis. I said, "Oh, oh, that's absolute,
0: <laughs> but, now, like I, undeniable, right there." I feel okay. While like. well, we're talking about Star Wars, I just want—I don't—I cannot say explicitly that this is where this comes from but this is a 1927 text that has all of these economic themes and does have the upper class living at the top in all these skyscrapers and you have to descend 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 into literally the bowels into the earth itself to get to where the lower classes are and that's like corsant and Star mm-hmm. Wars is that but I, I know there's other sci fi films with with futuristic cities like I know this is not exclusive to Metropolis I just don't know what sci fi short stories or literature may have been playing with that before Metropolis but we definitely have it visually displayed here and I can't imagine there's a film that's going to do that metaphor quite Uh, before metropolis uh at Mm -hmm. least in terms of creating that visual uh cues that we now see in things like blade runner i know also is a film that that does this um and uh and the coruscant sequences on star wars i think of that you know as as like just the it's a simple metaphor but it's so so perfect and and on the nose and visually appealing to do that like oh the upper crust way up there and us down here below Mm -hmm. um
1: This doesn't feel, I mean, it's not, it's not even too many years distant, but the third man Mm -hmm. has a sequence where there's like a chase in underground sewers with flashlights and everything. And I think, uh, Rotwang chases Maria through some catacombs with a flashlight slash sewer kind of situation. And it's very dynamic and everything. I think there might be something going on in the third man.
0: Yeah, and uh, again, like we're not saying this is the first thing to have a, a chase sequence down there. Like, uh, and even when I was talking about with some of the the uh, the economics and the, the those metaphors, mm-hmm. I'm sure you can find some Dickens that's going to play with like the the lower level and and things. Right,
1: you, you uh, have like um in in the time machine, you have mm-hmm. the more locks and the. Yeah. I no one ever knows what the the
0: surface dwellers are called. I can't remember, but the Morlocks <laughs> it's because of the X-Men that we know the Morlocks. Uh, <laughs> but you know they're they're underground and they're yeah. you know it's it's all of that stuff. So but but again just this is just locking in a lot of the visual aesthetic of how this is going to be portrayed in film even if there were other stories that were doing some of these things uh before. You mentioned the Titanic probably James
1: Cameron has seen oh, Metropolis yeah. <laughs> and therefore like flooding stairways it's well, going I mean, to that one does have uh, historical precedent that we, he was capturing. Yes, but like <laughs> the way but, it looks. Uh, uh, you know a visual of flooding and trying to ascend stairways and mm-hmm. you know escaping a flooding environment. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a certain look to it that I think there could be some inspiration from here.
0: Uh, I will also th- uh, I mentioned Metropolis and Superman, but I think Tim Burton's uh, Gotham City for for Batman, the it, it's uh, more of the German expressionism, the straight up Art Deco futurism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think there's shared look between uh, that uh, 1989 Batman Gotham City and uh, and, and Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, many
1: a mad scientist lab. Oh, Rotwang. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. It's got the stuff for mm-hmm. mad scientists and experiment lightning bubbling flasks you know
0: all of that sort of stuff yeah that no that's a good one uh i mean this is just to say uh even if you've never seen metropolis if you choose to go watch metropolis which there are versions on youtube that it's old enough it's public mm-hmm. domain you can go find versions on youtube um you're gonna have elements that were like i i know what has come from this you mm-hmm. know what has been built on this? a foundation. lot of
1: a lot of cathedral and church settings, you mm-hmm. know, have a, have a vibe associated with that. But I mean, that's also a real world environment.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But even like when I was reading the plot summary, I was thinking, you know, where, where, uh, you know, they're on the roof of the cathedral and then Rotwing falls to his death. I'm like, that is the finale of the Timber Burton Batman. <laughs>
1: oh yeah. That's a really specific one.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I did not think of that when I was typing it up, but it was when I was reading it off. I'm like, that is how the Joker dies. Mm hmm um so yeah it's i understand why some of my students don't like this film and like when i ask them like what is what are your least favorite viewings it's like well i I couldn't get into metropolis because the pantomime style Mm -hmm. some of the way that it gets framed is just old-timey enough that it's a different language than um our current like editing and filming styles and right, yeah, there's, there's so much that you look at it and you're like, oh, well, this this inspired so much of our current editing and filming styles.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's like there's shots and angles that we don't use anymore. A lot of stuff is framed like very straight on um, for characters doing certain things or to identify a character. It's it's very like this is straight at the person, like
0: face to face with the camera. Mm-hmm. And, and like it really does feel like broad overacting, the way freighter like throws himself around because he's pantomiming from the tradition of vaudeville, where you're playing for the back of the stage, you know, the back mm-hmm. of the room, uh, and and it, it's getting filmed, you know, three feet from his face, and it feels so broad and and it feels mm-hmm. overacted. So I get that, but if you can just get past that, this is a a pretty amazing viewing experience. Now, yeah, Andrew- not, not a lot of subtlety. In oh, no. <laughs> no. No, 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 no. <laughs> like you said, uh, uh, the themes are not subtext. The themes are just the text uh, mm-hmm. for, for this one, which was, I think it would be interesting to see a modern interpretation um, of this actual story. Not just but, the style, but like, how do you update this for modern audiences and, and for modern storytelling conventions in film? So well, I, and, I, I hope that miniseries does get rebooted at some point. And, and there's get-
1: still. Um, And there's still techniques in this that are relatively new. I mean, in in 1927, there's not a tremendous history of filmmaking technique um, that's been developed. And so there's a lot of things that they're doing that are, you know, they, they just become the language of film. And so when Robot Maria is working the upper class into a frenzy, they have cuts from what is she doing to how is the crowd reacting back and forth? And the, and the crowd's behavior is amplifying each mm-hmm. time. And you say, okay, this is escalating. I can, like this visual language is telling me that this is escalation.
0: Well, even the – there's the the transformation of the robot Maria, like with all the pulsing light as the Mm -hmm. robot becomes the actress that's playing Maria. Um, And the actress that plays Maria was in the robot suit uh, and apparently had had a very difficult time being in the robot suit. It was not comfortable. It was not really designed (laughs) to be worn so much as to be seen. And
1: and also (laughs) – I don't think the robot suit ever moves as a robot, so
0: I don't know that they needed to put her in that. Yeah, but there's some behind the scenes photos of, of her in that and and records of her complaints about having been in that in that suit. Um but uh, like that pulsing light like I it's another one where it's like oh well that's what they do with Doctor Who's transformations all the time <laughs> just get the <laughs> pulsing light going and, and we're gonna s- just swap out one actor uh, you know for another uh, and, and it's it's a cool effect for 1927 but it's an effect that like we just still borrow and still use as like okay here's how we can kind of do that transformation uh, on a lower budget today mm-hmm. I mean it was the top of the end when they did it <laughs> but now it's like okay we, we we can do this as a little
1: trick um, uh, to get through things I think the the design and Costuming on Rotwang, I don't know if that's based off anything in particular, but it feels I like. I think he has black gloves. He's mm-hmm. it, he's in like a big black, just I mean gown. I guess is the the way to describe it. But you know, like a mad scientist, big black gown, and it makes me think of
0: lots of other. it, it Like it mm-hmm. triggers visually. It's like mad scientist. Got it. Yeah, and and some of that may have been like. We know mad scientists were in the pulps, you know, in the 1920s, you know, that they, they as figures in genre stories were present. But how much of that was on film and, and the visual representation that becomes so iconic is from this. And that's when I'd have to look up, you know, do more research on the influence. But boy, has this got a lot of iconic <laughs> things about it. Um, now, Andrew, when we were watching it, we we had a little fun. Uh, do you want to share with the listeners what, what you did for a soundtrack, at least initially? I, I did initially play um one of taylor
1: swift's albums as as the music that i was listening to i switched over to the main one it didn't seem to to correlate enough to be really satisfying you know there's Mm. there's a little bit of of things here or there and and i assume you know our brains crave connection connection and and correlation and so anything you listen to with this you're gonna find something at at some point um but you know there's significant moments in this that just beg to be meaningful. And so you're going to find meaning and connection, whatever else you're listening to with it. Yeah, I think you found some things to be slightly even, well, well, I'd say significantly
0: more um, associative. Yeah. Now I'm, there's zero chance I'm the first person to have done this, but I did a little dark side of Metropolis. I pulled up (laughs) Pink Floyd's dark side of the moon, tried to sync it up now. What I ran into is uh, watching or, or, or both having Dark Side of the Moon on one YouTube window. Metropolis on another YouTube window. Can you guess what I ran into occasionally? Ads. YouTube ads. So how closely I ended up being linked, synced to if I had just turned on an album and turned on the movie uh, you know, from a DVD or something like that. I cannot say. But there were some very interesting uh, overlays. Now... Also, like I got tired enough of trying to do that every time an ad came up that once I was through the mm-hmm. dark side of the of the moon once i I didn't go back I just went went with the <laughs> the soundtrack that i had but uh some cool moments uh um Maria entering the gardens um has some alignment with stings in the song, Tim. Also the way the lyrics line up with freighter seeing the machines for the first time was, was like really uncanny. Um, like the, the lyrics are like, as he's watching these workers who are, who are killing themselves, working yep. these machines, They're the plastic, lyrics yeah. were, but you're older, shorter of breath, one day closer to death. Oh my goodness! Uh, as a worker collapses, and as the first workers are walked up the stairs in the Moloch sequence, it says, "Far away across the field, the tolling of the iron bell calls the faithful to their knees to hear the softly spoken magic spells." <laughs> I was like, "Whoa, wow!" <laughs> um, one that uh, whenever you people do the dark side of whatever, like the the cash register ching on money, uh, it's always a big line. one. Yeah. Uh, this lined up with uh Frederson in his office, uh ignoring his son's concerns about the workers. <laughs> so did, it's all money. Yeah. yeah. And uh brain damage played when we first see Rotwing in his lab. <laughs> So there were there were quite a few. Uh, now I was doing this not in the traditional uh, dark side of Oz uh, method of uh, some chemical enhancements to enjoy mm-hmm. the journey. This was just me sitting literally in my in my, uh, in, my in my office on campus. Just just the pure music uh, yeah. along with
1: the visuals of Metropolis
0: <laughs> and and uh, some 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 light grading. <laughs> Happening, so i may have missed some connections because, minor distraction <laughs> because i had to not not like actual grading of papers but like entering scores kind of grading like mm-hmm. oh, this, okay entering that on that window keeping an eye on this window i'd seen metropolis enough that i knew the plot so i wasn't really watching for plot uh for this uh but you know because there are literally dozens of scores for this i felt like we, we could just have a little fun while 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 mm-hmm. we were watching it uh, in this in this take. Um. All right, Andrew, are there, is there anything else you want to make sure we highlight about Metropolis?
1: Uh, I wanted to point out that like Fritz Lang clearly, and and I know you've talked about this to to me at least, he clearly knew how to make film and how to key people into certain things. Uh, The robot Maria has an eye twitch. Mm-hmm. And and he draws attention to it often enough that during that doppelganger sequence where the townspeople are chasing mm-hmm. any any Maria that they can get their hands on, you as a viewer know, but you also understand why why they in the film are not going to know the difference between the two, and it's based off of not like a not like a costuming code. It is. No, per- I will say the robot Maria's costume gets pretty scandalous. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, during some sequences, <laughs> yeah. um But like in in this sequence, we say, okay, you can tell because of something that the performer is going to do, and we have the advantage of having moving pictures, and so I mm-hmm. can make it a twitching eye yeah. as a as a code for you, the viewer, to know, okay, they have captured and they are about to burn at the stake, the robot, not the human, and I think it's like. Man, Fritz Lang has uh, limited tools at his disposal, and he just knows how to how to use them properly to give you the information you need to understand exactly what's going on and he's not wasting time with it. he's not making it dumb. he's not saying, "Oh, this one has dark hair or this one is wearing a sash or something like that. It's like no, it's a visual tick that you can see because you're you're watching a movie, yeah and it's like that's really smart. This guy knows how to take advantage of what he has available to him mm-hmm. to, you know, I, I assume that's not written into the book because nobody else is like, there's no reason that it would be written into a book. Mm-hmm. You don't need that kind of cue in the book. You can have a descriptor, yeah. um, you know, like identifying who is who freighter doesn't need this. He He never like identifies this as a way to tell or distinguish between the two. And so it's, it's just like communicating to the viewer, and it's distinct enough for us.
0: Now, you're saying it's not a book. I don't I, – I'm just going to say – I was just double-checking. His most famous film besides Metropolis is M, which is Link's first sound film, which uses sound in a similar way to what you're identifying with the visuals, where it's like, oh, he understands how to use whatever tools are at his disposal. Right. In that case, it's a new tool. Yeah, so, so a lot of directors who transition from silent film to sound, like even Hitchcock's first sound film, like the use of sound is clunky. Um, sometimes the dialogue is just very exposition expositiony. Uh, sometimes the sound mixing is it's just difficult to follow. Like uh, I remember seeing, I think it was Hitchcock's first sound film. There's a scene where uh, they're in a store and every time the door opens, it's like you're standing in the middle of the city street cars honking loudly <laughs> like all the sound is just flooding through this door and then the door closes in there in a soundproof booth and you just I, I, hear the the people speaking like, and so like, it's
1: supposed to be like hey when you can hear sound you would hear those sounds
0: yeah exactly but, but, it's, but it's, it's, it's 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 overdone it, it's distracting the way it's done now m which was also written by thea von harbo fritzling's wife at the time uh so so she wrote this and this is now key to the plot how this happened. so I don't know w- with what you're talking about did did she have anything to do with adding in the high twitch or was that just for mm. slang Saying this is be- in in the story of M there's a serial killer who has killed children it's it's so you know trigger warning for that played by Peter Laurie this kind of type this is going to typecast Peter Laurie as the creepy guy um for the rest of his career um but he whistles the same tune uh, every time he is uh interacting with kids and there's a blind man who hears that tune uh and realizes that that is a whistle being done by the serial killer that the police are looking for and so it's this this audible uh sound that becomes a haunting uh tune in the film uh is is key to catching the murderer in this um uh kind of suspense thriller uh called called M and uh so it's like this new tool now exists for me as a storyteller for Fritz mm-hmm. Lang uh, of sound and synchronized sound and and ensuring that everyone is actually hearing the same thing. Which even when they write a score to accompany the film, you don't actually know how the performance is going to go uh, with, with live accompaniment. And immediately, become it becomes core and integral to the story that is being told and uh i think you're correctly identifying that he just intuitively or at least he and his wife intuitively understood that the audience is going to need something with this doppelganger maria that's going to signify for us as viewers which one is which uh even as it's understandable that every character is confused about this and they chose this visual thing and then when they're getting to their first sound film in 1931 i just looked it up 1931 um they they still kind of intuitively master the immediate tool that exists for for their storytelling mm-hmm. in a way that other people who are brilliant filmmakers, iconic filmmakers, transitioning from silent to sound, uh, it feels like there's way more hiccups and figuring things out than what happens with uh, Fritz Lang moving on to M. Mm-hmm.
1: And I I think the the only other thing that I would say as we move towards wrapping up is oh, we've talked about how like the the real magic of this movie is in the visuals and it's not the story. I don't mean that to be like disparaging of the story or say that it's simplistic or anything like that. Like, it's a good story. And I would be very excited to see a modern Mm -hmm. remake, you know, in that TV series. There's enough characters that have enough dynamic interactions and enough internal motivations that this can like. It is interesting to watch the story unfold. Yeah. The resolution is like you get it. But, it's, I mean, we, we telegraph since the, the the first script on screen. Yeah, but like <laughs> you didn't you didn't even talk about the the worker that Freighter replaces. Mm-hmm. He has kind of a significant role in how everything works together in yeah. the end. And yeah, there are some and, and, and freighter has n- not the most interesting things going on, but he has moments where his character is important and the characteristics that he has. Like he is compassionate. He He is compassionate basically throughout the whole movie in a way yeah. that the workers and the, the, the elites. Yes. The <laughs> elites, the, the surface dwellers, you know, like he, he has a compassion that neither surfies, parties as they're
0: called, called yeah, that, <laughs> but, that, that neither of
1: them have. And to some extent that Maria doesn't seem to have. Mm-hmm. And so he does have like character to him. And um, I mean, you didn't talk about the uh, Freighterson has a henchman. Mm-hmm. in this movie and like yeah there's a there's a plot with that and and with another worker and you know like there's there is interesting stuff going on story-wise and character-wise in this movie in addition to all of these visuals and i like it's it's worth watching
0: yeah and and like the moloch sequence yeah the metaphor is on the nose and it's just there but it's so impressive the way they it's, do it it really is and like it's one of those um moments where you remember the magic of filmmaking where you're, you're kind of like, how do they do that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Even as like, you see the wires that are flinging some people, but still there's a pause of like, but no, like physically, how did they do that? (laughs) Yeah.
1: And, and things are put together well in this and like the actors are choreographed in in a lot of these sequences. There's a lot of time spent watching people do things. And like there's choreography going on with this. And there is, you know, a lot of like physical performance that -hmm. people have to do with this, not just the, the broad pantomime stuff, but like, I mean, people are moving around objects on these sets for, for sequences that are supposed to be the factory. And like, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, not just the visuals and not just the inspiration for what other people do in the future. It's like, no, this is like well-made and like meticulously created. Like, you can tell it's like, okay, this guy had a vision and he made his vision happen. And yeah, sometimes I, I, you don't have – sometimes you have only one of those two. Sometimes you have neither. And something
0: really special happens when you get both of those. And it's worth noting, like, this is considered a classic, a masterpiece, a foundational film. A, and an influence. It is both like foundational for understanding modern science fiction, like that genre and the visual cues of science fiction. You kind of have to go back to Metropolis to understand the shape of. Uh, audience expectations and uh, and uh, producer like intent and, and how we're going to make things look like you, you this is so core to that and every filmmaker that's working in sci-fi has probably watched this at some point but it's also just for filmmaking this is a foundational like icon of of that decade of 1920s one of the greatest films of the 1920s well Metropolis is going to be on every single person's list that studies film history um so it's it it's uh, sometimes. We look at like, why is it a classic? It's because of his influence in this particular vein or this particular genre um, or, or, or this distinct thing. And Metropolis is one of those films that is there early enough in film history and is big enough and grand enough and also as you noted just qual- you know well enough made high enough quality throughout the entire the entire film that it's foundational in in, in multiple areas and multiple uh ways that it's it's uh, reputation in history is 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 earned because it really is that significant mm-hmm all right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, you can go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. The heart being the mediator between the hands and the head gets said several times. Whoa, neck. that was a Sorry. big one. <laughs> Sorry.